You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. In Luke 3, we see John the Baptist is out in the wilderness baptizing. And then we have this big genealogy. But now it's Luke 4, and it's Jesus' turn to be out in the wilderness all alone. Look at verse one and two with me. It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he got baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And notice it doesn't say the devil drug him out into the desert, but rather it says God by the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. Why? Well, in Luke 3, we learn that Jesus is the son of God. God spoke out of heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But we also learned in the genealogy last week that Jesus is a real man. He's a real son of Adam. He's a true man in a new Adam for us. So Jesus is led into the wilderness by God to prove that he'll be a faithful man, a sinless man overcoming temptation. And this is his final preparation for the road ahead in his ministry. And at this moment, Jesus starts to reenact or fulfill the Old Testament because every story in the Bible is about Jesus. Every Old Testament story, no matter how wild, it's about Jesus. And Jesus is stepping right into all of these stories out here in the desert. He's reenacting the story of Adam and Eve where he must face the devil's temptation. Adam faced that devil as a snake, but he was in a beautiful garden with food aplenty. The animals coming up to be named. Oh, you will be a horse and you will be a cow. Everything's going great for Adam. He has this beautiful wife by his side that he prayed for. Yet Adam fails to trust God and Adam gives in to the snake. And now we have Jesus not in a garden, but the desert. The Matthew account says the animals are are wild. Back then they had lions roaming in Israel, wolves aplenty, snakes abound. And he's not surrounded. He doesn't have a beautiful partner. He's alone, hungry, 40 days hungry. Yet Jesus must resist the devil and trust God. Because before Jesus can die for all people in our place for our sins, He must be tempted and tried just like Adam, but he must succeed or all is lost. Jesus is also reenacting the story of Israel in the wilderness to succeed by trusting God where Israel failed. If you remember Israel's story, they grumbled and complained in the wilderness for 40 years. After being freed in the Exodus from slavery under Pharaoh, they got to the desert and immediately said, could we go back? Life is hard out here. Even though God was providing water and manna from heaven, they complained and they grumbled. And when they finally got to the promised land, they sat for 40 days, not entering, but sending spies in. The spies came back and they ultimately didn't trust God anyways. And they were sent to be disciplined and wander the desert for another 40 years to learn to depend on God, to learn to obey God. And finally, Jesus is reenacting about a half dozen Old Testament characters here. 
He's reenacting Moses and Elijah and Noah and David and Jonah who had 40 days of preparation, 40 days of waiting, 40 days of revelation, 40 days of challenge before proceeding in their journey. And we do a similar thing right here at Citizens. That's what Ash Wednesday is. It's 40 days from Easter minus the Sundays. From our service coming this Wednesday is the moment when we reflect on our humanness, our limits, that we are fragile creatures made of dust. And in our fragility, we don't lose hope, but we look forward to Easter and say the true man of dust was broken for us and rose again. And the devil comes with three temptations to Jesus. And his goal is to crack a wedge in between Jesus and his father, God. And remember who the devil is. His Hebrew name is Asatan, where we get Satan, which simply means the accuser, the one who wants to point out our sins, failings before God. In Greek, he's Diablos, the one who throws a cross or hurls accusations. It's the same sense. He's like a terrible lawyer with a lawsuit or mean Instagram comments. The devil comes bringing accusations and the devil will challenge Jesus to fail as a man by questioning his relationship with God. Each temptation is a version of, is God really your father? Are you completely sure, Jesus? And this matters for our lives in two big ways. First, if Jesus fails to trust God and sins by trusting the devil, he can't die for our sins. He can't save the world. He's no longer sinless sacrifice for us, but all is indeed lost. The world is irredeemable. And the second, you'll notice the devil's temptations haven't changed all that much. From Adam to Eve to Jesus to us, the devil is still trying to crack a wedge between you and God trying to get you to doubt who God is, doubt you can trust him, doubt your relationship with God, or to get you to trust anything else but God, to find your truest identity somewhere else than being beloved by God is the devil's work. If you find yourself finding your truest identity somewhere else, even if it's a good thing, being married, uh, having a job, uh, being educated, but well, well, even if it's a good thing, your truest identity must be that you're beloved by God or the devil has tricked you that something is more important than God's love. And we can see ourselves being tempted in these temptations, just like Jesus. And the devil tempts him three times. The first temptation, is God really your father? If you are struggling, verse two and three, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. That would make you hungry. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus, after 40 days, we're getting the climax of the temptations here, is challenged by the devil with a half-truth. Jesus is hungry. But hear the demonic logic here. Hey, Jesus, if you're so hungry, why not just provide for yourself? Should you be struggling this much if God actually loves you? 
are you sure God sees you? Because you're looking kind of lean. And Jesus will make bread miraculously later in his ministry. He's very capable. That's not the issue. But the part of Jesus being fully and faithfully human means not using his godness for his own advantage. You'll notice throughout all the gospels and right here in the gospel of Luke that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but he doesn't use his godness for his own profit, but rather just as proof to the world that I am indeed God, the Messiah here for you. So for Jesus to flex his godness to make bread would be say, I'm no longer trusting God as a human, but I'm taking matters into my own hands. And that is the great twist of the devil's challenge. It sounds so reasonable, but we must realize when Jesus is hungry, sleepy, sick, or tempted, he really is hungry, sleepy, sick, or tempted. He must be a true man, a true human like us in order to redeem us. And if Jesus takes matters into his own hands here, it would be sin and all would be lost. Do you really trust that God loves you? Verse four, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And right here, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 which is God speaking to Israel about how he humbled them in the desert, that they would learn through their suffering, their struggle of hunger, to lean on God's providence of manna as they wandered in the desert. And what Jesus is saying is that God will provide all I need to be faithful in this life. Nothing more, nothing less. I trust God to provide. Jesus is unworried about his discomfort, even though he's struggling. You hear that, church? Jesus is unworried about his discomfort, even though he's struggling. And can I ask you a question about that? Do you have friends in your life that would give you godly advice like Deuteronomy 8.3? Do you have friends in your life that would give you godly advice like Deuteronomy 8.3 that would hear your struggles and it would sound something like this? Hey, thanks for sharing, friend. I'm so sorry that you're hurting so bad. Man, how can I come alongside you to wait for God's providence in this wilderness moment of your life? Maybe say something like, instead of choosing sin or compromise or doubting God in this struggle, friend, how can I help you press in and press on faithfully trusting God, even though you're struggling right now? That's a godly friendship. That's a godly friendship that doesn't say, follow your heart. That doesn't say, hey, do whatever's easiest, man. That's a friendship that takes years to cultivate. It will take years of work, but it'll be worth it because it'll actually point you to Jesus. To be more than just a comforter, but to comfort with the truth of God, that God, even though we're discomforted, even though we're struggling, doesn't mean God is absent or asleep, but that's a time to wait on the providence of God in your life. That's a friendship that's not based on age, not based on interest, but is actually centered on Jesus. That they want you to look like Jesus. Do you want friendship like that? It's not based on where you went to school, but about who your savior is. And Citizens is a fantastic place to work on that and build that. It may take years, but the payoff will be huge 
to say this relationship is based mainly on Jesus, which means we can talk about Deuteronomy 8.3 together and what that looks like. Jesus says, I'm in a struggle, but I'm learning faithfully. I'm not panicking, I'm not complaining, and I'm not going to compromise. Jesus believes if God brought him into the wilderness, then God can provide for him in the wilderness. Amen? The devil questions God's care, and Jesus responds that God's care is greater than my temporary discomfort. How often are we missing the lessons in our struggles through complaining or maybe even making ourselves so busy to numb what's really going on? What would it be like to pay attention in our wilderness and our struggle and say, God has not changed? When we belong to Jesus, our circumstances don't determine our obedience. We're taught just to react, react, react to our circumstances. And in Christ, we can choose how we respond. We don't have to knee-jerk everything that happens in our life. Jesus doesn't have to just start making bread in the desert like a bakery. He can say, if God led me here and told me we're not eating for 40 days, he will provide for me in the way to be faithful going forward, no matter what the devil is whispering in my ear. Temptation two, is God really your father if he makes you work and wait? If he makes you work and wait, verse five and seven. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. I imagine this is like a wild movie just ripping through all the nations and all the peoples and all the tribes and tongues and languages and civilizations to see all of this. And he said to him, to you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil challenges Jesus by showing him exactly what Jesus plans on dying for. Jesus dies for us, for all nations, all people, all power, all glory. And the devil's offer is skip all the hard stuff, Jesus. You don't have to wait, you don't have to work, and you don't have to suffer that cross. But Jesus knows this has already been promised by God explicitly in Psalm 2, explicitly in Daniel 7, through the promises of Genesis 12 that speak to the reality of Messiah will come and save and then rule all things. But the devil is offering an alternative plan for the lordship of the world. It's a plan without a cross. See, God's plan looks like this. God's plan is that God would come in the cradle, become a real human, live a perfect life, die on a real cross for our sins, and then be granted the crown to rule all things. But the devil says, what if we skip the middle? Being born doesn't sound that hard. Ruling all sounds awfully attractive. But the problem is it's a false crown because Jesus knows, A, the devil is a liar. He's been lying since the beginning. That would be John 8. But he also knows Psalm 16, that apart from you, God, I have no good thing. To bow a knee to to the devil would be the worst of all possible scenarios. It's the world we are currently born into, where our knees already bowed to the devil and we need to be freed from that reality. 
Jesus knows that the devil is offering him a false hope. He knows and trusts his father. He chooses the work of the cross for us, chooses to wait for glory. Even though he's tasted all glory, he says, I'm foregoing that for now because there's a glory to come. And that's the shape of the gospel in life. Romans 8, 17 says this, that if we, if we are children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The gospel pattern of life is suffering, then glory. That any attempt of glory without working and waiting is a false glory that will fade. Just like ill-gotten riches in the Proverbs it will quickly fade, church. The pattern for meaningful things in this life, in eternity, and planting a church is suffer, wait, work, then glory and goodness. That's just how life works. And if you are if you are deep in the devil's lies, you are deep in the devil's lies if you expect meaningful things to cost nothing. You are deep in the devil's lies if you expect meaningful things to cost nothing. Your salvation is free to you only because it costs Jesus everything. Meaning is made in the sacrifice. All the things that mean the most to you, it's sacrifice and commitment over time. Jesus knows this too. And he leads us onward to embrace that kind of life, a life that actually matters. The stakes couldn't be higher, church. And Jesus simply replies, Deuteronomy 6.13. Look what he says. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus knows the devil lies. He knows only God is trustworthy. And he says, no way. I would rather suffer a hundred crosses than worship you for a day because you're evil. And my father is not bad to make me suffer. This is a plan we made together to redeem the whole world from the brokenness, not of us, but of all mankind. And so the devil brings temptation three, and I think it's the most compelling. Is God really your father if he lets you die? Is God really your father if he lets you die, Jesus? Verse nine, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. I think this is the most compelling of the temptations for two reasons. One, the devil's quoting scripture to Jesus. This is Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. It's a Psalm that talks about the mighty fortress, the refuge, the safe haven that God's temple in Jerusalem is for his people. And the Psalm is speaking about the supernatural protection given to King David during periods of his life. And the second reason it's compelling is it strikes at the fear of all humans. And remember, Jesus is fully man, that death is a great fear, that there's a great unknown there. And when the devil takes him to this pinnacle, this kind of top of the temple complex, and it looks over a deep valley, it'd be quite a fall. 
It's supposed to be about 100 yards high. That's two-thirds up the tallest tower in downtown Birmingham, the Wells Fargo Tower. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote of this tower and said it was one of the tallest things he had ever seen man create in his life. To fall from there would be certain death. And this temptation challenges the heart of Jesus's mission and plan with God. If you trust God to die for sins on the cross and be resurrected, why not test that ability of God now? Surely he'll save you, right? Surely God has the power to resurrect you or to save you from this fall, right? I mean, you are the son of David, and this is scriptural, Jesus. But Jesus knows scripture too. And Jesus trusts his father, and he knows testing God is a serious offense in the Old Testament. The path before Jesus is dangerous because the world is treacherous. We got the proof. They will murder Jesus in the end. Jesus' path is not dangerous because God is treacherous. Rather, God is the only completely trustworthy person. When we test God, it puts us in the judgment chair on God's character. Whew, not a place you want to live, friend. To trust God instead, not test, but trust God, keeps us out of the judgment chair and it helps us curl up in the safe and loving arms of God in a truly treacherous world. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16, another teaching for Israel when they sinfully tested God themselves. And Jesus answered and said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Church, making little tests in life for God to do this or do that or make this or make this is not a faithful way to interact with God. Trusting God at his word is a faithful way to interact with the God of the Bible. With that final quotation of scripture, Jesus resists the devil and conquers where Adam fell into the devil's clutches. Romans 5.15 captures the scope of kind of what's happening here of replacing Adam's sin with Jesus's triumph ultimately by the cross. Look with me at Romans 5.15. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift, Jesus. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. From Adam's sin in the garden, it's spread like cancer across every living thing and even non-living things. We're all broken by this sin. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. It's this direct replacement that now there's hope in Jesus, that the work of Adam can be undone. The trick of the devil does not last, that in Christ you can be free and free indeed. Jesus' obedience makes the way for our redemption. Jesus is victorious and the devil departs. Verse 13, it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. When? Until an opportune time. The devil will swing back around in the back two chapters of Luke. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. A report about him went through all the surrounding country and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus is tempted and tried and found faithful. And now his ministry of glory begins. There was the struggle and now the glory. So this is our challenge today. 
how do we apply such a passage to our life? Do we head out for 40 days of not eating? Is that the step? Some of you are like, maybe, I don't, I don't know. Tell me, pastor, that's why I'm here, good. Well, here's what Jesus's victory in the desert means for us. First, we can look to Jesus for a pattern to overcome the devil's temptations in your life. Simple what Jesus does. He trusts God. He knows scripture. He sees the devil's lies as crafty as they are for what they are, lies. And Jesus basically follows James 4, 7. Submit to God, the devil will flee. He is living that out as a scripture. By this pattern, we're given a great assurance from God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. I love this passage. It says, no temptation, no temptation in your life, my life, your life, anyone's life, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. You may be able to endure it. No matter how big the temptation feels this week or maybe last night or this morning, God gives you an escape hatch. He says you can escape no matter what it is, no matter how specific it feels, no matter how much you've been hurt, that God is saying, if you follow me, I will give you an escape hatch that you can resist temptation. And remember, temptation's not sin. To be tempted is not to sin. It's giving in to temptation that is sin. But to do the escape hatch plan, it requires tremendous humility to trust God's ways when it gets tough because it says you must endure it. It doesn't say he's gonna provide an escape hatch. It's like, oh man, this is way easier. It's tough to stand up for what's right at work and not remain passive about something that's not cool. It's tough to delete your social media because it always ends up in a dark place. It's tough to skip social situations. It's tough to start confessing your sins, even unsavory ones to friends to say, hey, I want out. And the only way out is to put this in the light. The way out might not be easy, but there is a way out for those who follow Jesus, amen? And we should learn from Jesus's pattern, but Jesus's victory in the desert and on the cross is more than a pattern for us. Jesus' victory is our actual pardon for sins. He did what Adam couldn't and we can't. And more, it's the gospel power to overcome temptation in our life. Look what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus's life and how it relates to our sin now. This is Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Listen to this. But was in all points tempted as we are, these temptations weren't just extra stuff. Jesus wanted to be fully prepared to be our priest. So he's been tempted with all the things you've been tempted with. And what's this done to Jesus? What's this happened? Why, 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 why? Yet without sin, okay. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to struggle and he doesn't despise you for it. I think a lot of us roll around thinking God's despising us for being weak. And this passage is saying the opposite. 
He's saying he knows the struggles. He's saying he's sympathetic to you and he's waiting and wants you to come to him. If you are in Christ, Jesus's victory is your victory. And the way to test this out, if you believe that, is what's the look on Jesus's face when you sin? Not the church answer, but what do you really believe is on his face when you sin? Because I know, yes, sin grieves God, the devil loves sin, Jesus hates sin, but Jesus also sympathizes with arms wide open to give you mercy and grace. He didn't come because we're not sinners, he came because we are sinners. A throne of grace, not a little bucket. That's why it turns the water and the wine, more wine than any humans could ever drink at any party, that it would overflow to you that there's more grace than sin in you. Do you believe that? And he's not cheering on our sin, but he is cheering on you to follow him. When you are in need, Jesus's arms are wide for more grace in your sin and comfort in your struggle. Furthermore, the Lord knows it's gonna be a great war against temptation in your life. Galatians 5, 17, listen to this, man. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Even when you want to obey God, it's still a war. This world is broken. Old habits die hard. Our life is difficult. And man, this is my experience. This passage strikes true for me. I'm in a war with myself all the time. I'm in a war against temptation and sin all the time. It doesn't leave me alone. I am not above it. If the devil is so bad that he can roll up to Jesus and challenge him to his face, man, he ain't scared of you and me. He's bringing it. Jesus doesn't hide that he was tempted. He has it published in scripture to encourage us that he is both a pattern and a pardon for us. Church, I am at war with my shortcomings, my sin, my fear, my guilt and shame all the day long. And here's the truth, church. Sometimes I lose. Good thing Jesus is real and grace works for me too. Don't look at me like you're an angel or been a Christian since the womb. You need Jesus or you wouldn't be here. (laughs) I'm sure there's a brunch somewhere. Sometimes the garden of our heart, we talk about our heart as a garden here at Citizens, has more rocks and thorns than we thought. There's more that the Lord is pulling out, making room to plant good things in our soul. And sometimes we get surprised. We put the spade down again and find a huge rock. That shouldn't discourage you. It should encourage you that the Lord isn't done with you. And instead he's pulling out the deeper idols and stuff out of your heart putting new good soil in and going to grow something beautiful in its place. Listen to the good news, church. First John 2, Jesus is our pardon of our past, present, and future. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Righteous because he overcame temptations. He is the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Pardon means you are really finally forgiven. Not just the past, but your right now sins and your sins in the future. He died for them all. And finally, Jesus is our power to resist temptation and stop the patterns of sin. We don't have to live in the same patterns we used to. Hebrews says again, since the children have become flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that so, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free us, free us from the devil. Those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Church, when you are in Christ, you are truly free. The devil does not have a claim on your life. You can walk out of the power of sin all together. That you are forgiven, but you're also freed. If you are in Christ, you are not under the devil's control any longer. And furthermore, sin doesn't have to rule you. Romans 6.22 is beautiful. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. You don't have to go back like a dog to its vomit to sin, but you actually can walk away because you're not under that law anymore. When we sin, we think we're free, but we actually become slaves to that sin. But in Christ, it's a spirit of freedom that sets us actually free from the law of sin and death that we don't have to fear death anymore, but can confidently die to greet our Savior eye to eye. There's a power in Jesus to break every chain, to change, to resist every desire and be free of the devil himself. And that's the power of the gospel to actually change you from the inside out. Jesus' life gives us a pattern to resist temptation. Jesus' death gives us a pardon for our failures in temptation. And Jesus' resurrection gives us a power to overcome temptation altogether. Jesus' victory is our victory, church. He's the Adam who crushes the serpent. He's the faithful faithful Israel, and he's the true hero of all the Bible. And he's the savior who brings us all the way home. 